My grandma Dana's devil's food cake was legendary. It was a perennial request by her grandchildren on their birthdays. It was always the first dessert eaten at a church dinner or a Grange potluck. Always double layers of moist chocolate cake and a thick layer of perfect chocolate frosting. My grandma Dana's devil's food cake was a thing of beauty, and it was delicious, too. So it was natural that when I was ten years old, the budding baker in me wanted to make this cake myself. Watching in her kitchen, I had seen my grandma Dana deftly join two moist layers of cake together and cover them with luscious frosting. How hard could it be? So one day I convinced her to help me make the cake. But being ten years old, I didn't want too much help. I wanted to do it myself. I wanted this to be my cake. Everything started out all right. I succeeded in mixing the batter properly and getting it in the cake pans. As the cake began to bake, it was clear that one layer was doing better than the other. Had I not gotten the baking powder mixed in evenly evenly or something? When the cake came out of the oven, I was impatient to get on to the next step. Rather than following my grandmother's advice and waiting for the layers to cool more, I insisted on getting them out of the pans before they were ready. One layer lost a couple of big chunks as it came out of the pan. No worries, I thought. That's what the frosting's for, (laughs) to hide the blemishes. Now, most people have a bit of trouble the first time they make chocolate frosting, and I was no exception. The delicate balance of melted chocolate to powdered sugar eluded me. First, the frosting was too runny, and then it was too stiff. All the while, my grandmother was gently coaching me from the sidelines and trying not to step in and intervene. Getting the layers of the cake together was not so difficult, but frosting the outside proved impossible. I was getting frosting and bits of cake everywhere, like some desperate mason trying to patch a crumbling wall. I just kept trying to cement the cake together with more and more frosting. It was getting lumpier and uglier by the minute. Ultimately, the cake had frosting on most of it, and it was able to stand on its own on the plate. But I was in tears. The cake looked awful. It did not resemble in any way my Grandma Dana's famous creation But there it was, and we would eat it after dinner. When it was time for dessert that night, my whole family watched as I presented my first chocolate cake. I was a pretty good sport during the teasing that I got for how it looked. But the jests died down as soon as everyone received a piece and began to eat. The cake tasted good no matter how it looked. And everyone agreed that a cake was not to look at after all. It was to be eaten. The cake was not for show. It was to be shared with my family. 
as a 10-year-old, what had I wanted? I had wanted to make a beautiful cake. I had wanted to do it myself. That's natural. But years later, I realized something else far more powerful had been going on in my mind that day. At 10 years old, I wasn't yet fully indoctrinated into the cravings for perfection that our society creates. My family's pleasure in eating the cake was enough to heal my disappointed ego. I got over baking a decidedly imperfect cake. I am rarely so lucky anymore. We live in a world that thrusts perfection at us. We live in a world that tells us to buy far, far more things than we need. We live in a world that convinces us that we need to be able to choose from dozens of varieties of everything. We live in a world that suffocates us with stuff. And the volume on that world is only going to get turned way up as we head further into the Christmas shopping season and as millions of shoppers all seek perfect gifts for their loved ones. The perfect gift is the holy grail of American society. All of us were well-trained to be excellent consumers, and we in turn carefully teach our children and our grandchildren how to be good consumers too. The desire for perfect things comes from their perfect images. This is why advertising is so effective. To see something is to want it. And there's no larger collection of perfect images than the popular internet website, Pinterest. I won't even ask for a show of hands. (laughs) This social network site allows people to post photographs of their families, clothes, pets, homes, meals, Perfection is the goal on Pinterest. The object is to have other people validate your photographs by repinning them, and thus the competition for perfection ensues. In her essay about Pinterest, Beth Felker Jones, who teaches at Wheaton College in Illinois, says, I know what an onslaught of images of perfectly produced meals, perfect living rooms, and fashionable wardrobe threatens to do to my consciousness. It encourages a constant spiritual state of discontent, of unmet desire. She goes on to say, Naomi Wolf has said that pornography turns real women into bad porn just as the produced sexualities of pornography threaten the unpredictable messiness of real bedrooms, they perfect the perfect pinboards that litter my social network may threaten my enjoyment of and attention to real life. Does Pinterest turn real households, real family dinners, and real women into bad pins? Is it any wonder that the first of the Ten Commandments says, You shall not make for yourself an idol, whether in the form of anything that is in heaven above or that is on the earth beneath 
or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them, and you shall not worship them. The first commandment, numero uno, the top banana. The first commandment given by God to the Hebrew people is you shall not make idols of things. Oh boy, I would hate to see the fit that Moses would throw if he could see what gods we have made of things. Talk about golden calves. We have pastures and pastures full of them. God does not want us to worship material goods. God does not want us to put our selfish desires before the needs of others. God does not want us to live scattered, distracted lives filled with desire and craving. God does not want us to have more stuff. God wants relationships among, between, and around us. For what is an idol really but a distraction from a true relationship with another The religious path constantly urges us to seek out the real, the good, and the true. You shall not make for yourself an idol. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. This is not easy spiritual work to do in a culture that thrusts idols at us at every turn. A couple of weeks ago, I went to the Burlington Mall. I needed some jeans and a pair of shoes. The Burlington Mall, as many of you probably know, is a gleaming world of glass and chrome. It is visually overstimulating and spotlessly clean. The many stores seem to shout at their customers, Come in here! And roving salespeople come right up to you and say, Try this! My trouble at a mall is that I can't suspend reality long enough to actually make the shopping a pleasurable experience. My trouble is that I can see the mall's destructive shadow side at all times. The Burlington Mall is full of overpriced goods that most of us don't really need, made in faraway countries, usually by poor workers. Talk about a kill, a buzz kill on the shopping experience. <laughs> now, I like shiny new things as much as anyone. I like nice clothes and new shoes. But that day at the mall, I felt overwhelmed and saddened by the tremendous amount of things to buy and by the many, many people who were seeking perfection there. And yet, everyone there was engaging in America's favorite pastime, shopping. It is not the Burlington Mall's fault that it is filled with stores selling things that most people don't really need. It is our fault. We are the ones who demand new, different, interesting, and perfect things. We are the ones who turn shopping into pleasure and advertising into pornography. We are the ones who have mistaken things for people, and we are paying the price We are paying the price in damage to our relationships, our household savings, our spiritual lives, and the health of our planet. 
The good news is, though, we can resist. We, can, we are not powerless in this. And best of all, resisting feels amazing. It, takes, it is surprisingly easy to be countercultural. It takes very little energy to be content with less stuff. And if you can resist the urge to buy more and more stuff, you really are making a difference, even if the world around you doesn't seem to notice. So stop shopping for pleasure. If you do, I will. Find contentment in the things that you already have. Resist the idols wherever you encounter them. Years ago, I resolved not to spend any money on the Friday after Thanksgiving. For me, so-called Black Friday is the most repugnant day in the entire year. The most repugnant day in the entire year. It is the feast day for the most dangerous idol threatening the health and future of our planet, consumerism. So I carefully plan to avoid Black Friday altogether. I make sure that I have food in the house to eat. I plan my day so that I don't have to drive anywhere. I resist any urge to go to a store or to shop online. I do everything in my power to turn my back on the idol of consumerism, if only for one day. You might try it. It might be something that we could take on as a communal spiritual practice, like some other Unitarian Universalist churches do. We could join together in our call for more sustainable living. It is clear to me that we cannot resist the seduction of perfection alone. We cannot be countercultural in solitude. We need one another. We need a resistance movement. We need to surround ourselves with other people who value relationships over things as much as we do. When I do weddings, one of the things that surprises the congregation most is when I turn to them and say, you are responsible for this marriage. You should see the expression on people's faces when I tell them that the two people getting married are not solely responsible for the success or the failure of their marriage. People get downright wide-eyed when I look at them squarely and tell them that they, the family and friends of the couple, must be engaged in making sure that this marriage succeeds. I tell people that if they do not check in with the couple, that they have failed them. If they do not celebrate the couple's joys and accomplishments, then they have failed them. I tell them if they do not lend a hand when the couple is in trouble, then they have failed them. In our highly romanticized and individualistic culture, people are quite astonished to have a minister tell them that they are responsible for the success of someone else's marriage. But it is true. Each of us plays a big role in whether or not two people stay in a marriage or not. Each of us plays a big part in whether a marriage results in an affair or a divorce. 
Each of us is responsible for how people pick up the pieces after they have separated or divorced. Each of us is responsible for the health of a community in which people live, whether they are single, married, divorced, or widowed. And this is doubly true for religious community. We are responsible for one another. We are in relationship. We can help each other resist the idolatry of our times. We can choose people over things. We can help each other live the lives that we long to live, sustainable lives grounded in community. So be it. Amen.